Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through stories from amazing people. This is season three. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have remarkable stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Bridget Hempstead. Bridget, welcome to the show. Thank you, LaShawn. I'm very honored to be here with you today. Fantastic. Now, Bridget founded the Breast Cancer Survivor and Support Organization, Sierra Sisters. We're going to get into that, but we always start by going way back, right? So I want to talk about you first. Tell me more about you know yourself. I know you were born in Sacramento. What was your childhood like? My childhood was young Black girl raised during a time where race was a serious issue. And the Black Panthers gave us safe passage to school. They were a very intricate part of our community, made sure that we had good health care and making sure that we can get to school and home safely without losing our lives as children. Give me more on that, uh, making sure you had good health care. Give me more context there. So they had uh, clinics. They had free clinics uh, for the community because, you know, healthcare is insur- it w- is very expensive even back then. Now, I didn't understand the concept until becoming an adult, what that all meant. And so I have a clear understanding on how and why our Blacks almost, I don't want to say saviors, but those leaders made sure that we were safe. And of course, Black Panthers were demonized and criminalized because of the work that they were doing to try to help protect us from the whites that wanted to do harm to the young Black people in the community. Wow, no, I'm pretty sure And it that hasn't is. changed. Like yeah. my childhood, the way that it was when I was a young child is no different than it is now. However, the concept for me is very different because I'm a an adult wanting to make sure that my children had a safe childhood. So yeah, you're, you're that playing was, that, that, was a, that was a very big issue. I mean, my mother, when we were, when we were younger, it was make sure you're home before the sun goes down, before the street lights came on. And I had, I was raised with two brothers. And why did she say that? Because she didn't want her sons or her daughters killed for a ridiculous reason that we mm-hmm. see now, holding a bag of Skittles. Back then they didn't right. have Skittles, <laughs> but we had, you know, licorice ropes, but you, Yeah, to stay safe. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned your mother. Tell me a bit more on how your mother and your grandmother shaped your view of the world. Well, my grandmother, oh my gosh, just she's an incredible woman and she was disabled. So One of the things that my grandmother taught me was don't let your disability label you to not be able to do whatever you want to do and accomplish what you want to do as a man, as a woman, as a person. And so Big Mama, who drove her grandfather's pink Cadillac, she inherited that, (laughs) the ones with the wing ears. And so she would take me around with her to go grocery shop and pay her bills. And because she had a disability and she was walking on crutches, she would pull up to the store. You know, this is a a very empowered woman. She would pull up to the store and they would come out to the car, get her list, go shop for her, bring her groceries to the car, 
bring her back her change, and then we would go to the next stop to go pay a bill. Mm-hmm. You know, either she would give me the money to go in, or if she didn't think that it was a good place for me to go in, she would have them come out. So right. that was an empowered black woman that took her she granddaughter out. She, she, she was inventing uh, food delivery way back when. <laughs> way back when, in the 60s. Yeah. And so that's my grandmother, Big Mama. My grandmother and my mom taught me how to cook. My grandmother taught me how to cook from her chair. And in the living room, there was a table that was there. And so she would have me bring every item one at a time. And I would say, Big Mama, I'm in the kitchen. I can get more things. And she says, no, just bring the one. And so she was teaching me how to cook one item at a time. And then when it got done, then everybody sat down and ate together. So that was my at my grandparents' house. And usually we would spend the weekend with them. Mm. My mom, she would do the same thing. As we got older, she would take a Saturday, she would cook seven meals during the on a Saturday to make sure that we would have food when she got off of work during the week. My mom worked two jobs and always in the healthcare system. And back then she was the physician's assistant. I think that's what they call them. Physician's assistant back then before you had to get certified. So she had a doctor Mm. that she worked very close with and that doctor showed her everything. And so this was before they said, oh, wait a minute, we can get this classified and make it harder for the black people to get in. But she was grandfathered in because of the way Mm. that her doctor brought her into the healthcare system. So my mother, they called her Dr. D. Anybody in the neighborhood that had some kind of problem, they would call my mom or come to the house and she would tell them what they need to do. Let me tell, and she would say these words, let me tell you what you need to do. (laughs) (laughs) And she was being very proactive and she knew that she would teach the community When you're dealing with white doctors, make sure you ask questions. Make sure you understand what's happening. So that way, whenever you leave that doctor's office or whenever you're leaving a procedure, you're going to have your eyes woken up. So Hmm. that was a foundation of kind of the work that I do now is having those rich, rich memories and understanding that the healthcare system has never been favorable for the black community. We live in an environment where the color of our, of our skin is a target. And so uh, it's a bullseye. Oh, they're a black person, so we need to target them. So when I work with different programs or, or create different programs, I focus because we always have a target on our back anyway. So can we take the targets mm-hmm. off our back and put the focus on us so that we can yeah. live? Uh, we will get to the the uh, more on the organization and the issue. I-, I wanted to tie something that you were just talking about, you know, with, you know, both your grandmother and your, your mother, you having this insight on, you know, kind of the power of being taught and teaching even early on, right? Now, as I understand it, you even start teaching your peers as a teenager, right? Um, like, yeah. like we're, it, like that's pretty fantastic. Like what were you teaching them and why did you think it was important even there to start sharing, you know, an empowering message? Well, in my um, neighborhood, I would talk to some of my friends and they were 
upset because of the way that they looked, because they had dark skin, their hair was different, their clothes were different. And I said, you know what? It doesn't matter what you think someone else looked like. I need you to go look in the mirror and talk about how beautiful you are and what a smart person you are. You know, I was always the one who would talk to the, I was the the underdog embracer and encourager. So I was always like that growing up. And as a teenager, I started a group and, you know, a young women and saying, you know, we are beautiful women and you are beautiful and live in that. And so it wasn't a, well, maybe it was formal, but it was informal in the way that it was organically organized to empower my sisters within my age group, my peer group. And so my friends started wearing afros where, you know, they didn't want to wear afros because back then it was like, you got to press your hair, you got to put perm on your hair. And I was like, you don't have to do any of that. So, you know, if you feel like you want to wear a pretty hat to school, wear a pretty hat. And so they started to embrace that. It didn't matter that we didn't have a whole lot of money. Maybe we don't need to know that we don't have a whole lot of money. Just dress how you feel and be encouraged and make sure you look good. And if you got more hips than everybody else, that's all right. Enjoy your hips. You know, your hips are pretty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if you are dark. So my group of peers were young girls of all different shades of brown. It was the lighter browns to the darker browns. It didn't matter how you look, what color your skin tone was. Let's come together. And so- um, That's great. That's great that you had that uh, motivation and insight at such an early age. And I mean, I know that now, you know, fast forward, you've taught every grade, right? From preschool to college. Uh, Have you found any difference in how we learn at our different stages of life? You know what? We as Black people learn by feeling, touching, seeing, smelling, tasting. And very tactile and immersive. We're very tactile. And so, because of that, we need to have all those moving parts and for us to learn. Some people learn very differently. And then as they get older, maybe it clicks like, oh, I have to touch it or I can just see it and and just do it. Some people are not like that. And so I think when it comes to learning institutions, we need to give grace on the individual and how they learn instead of of putting them in certain classrooms. Like when I grew up, my community back then, everybody learned together. If, if a person had some kind of a learning disability, they were in the regular classroom with everyone else. Now I think things are kind of siloed. It's been a while since I knew the the ins and outs of uh, the younger folks, but I think they put them in special needs classrooms and different things like that. So then it's not normal for them to live the way that they need to. I think in some schools though, what they do is they have a personal aid for that individual so that they can still be in the classroom. And they're teaching their peers to not uh, bully or make fun of that person because they're different. Yeah, no, it's powerful. And 
I think the theme of educating us uh, both, you know, who are we, how do we fit in the world? How do we, you know, give back to the world? It's, uh, you know, it's all needed across so many vectors and definitely healthcare is one of these critical ones. I want to segue into, you know, uh, later in life, you have this moment that, you know, transforms how you look at things and uh, you went to get a mammogram. Now, what prompted that? So, to be honest with you, I was sitting on the couch and God spoke to me and told me to get a, a, a mammogram and do it now in a very warning voice. So that was the first movement for me to go get a mammogram. But I want to back up three months prior to me hearing that voice for me. I ran into a woman at the grocery store in my neighborhood and I heard her on the phone and she was crying and she says, I just need to get some food. I don't have any money to get any food. And my heart just really poured out to her. And so I was there and another man who who drove in a very fancy Mercedes. I had a Jeep. He had a very fancy Mercedes, very well dressed. And Mm. he looked at the woman, shook his head and walked in the store. I saw the woman. I'm like, I cannot leave. It just was something inside of me. I cannot leave without saying something to the sister. And I said, hey, if you just wait a few minutes, I'm, I'm going to go and get some things and I'll be back. I, I'd love to help you. And so I went home. I think I went to the store for something very small, but God had a bigger plan. And so I went home and I gathered everything that I could out of my cabinets and and I got toilet paper, feminine hygiene products and different things like that. And I had about four to five grocery bags in my Jeep. And so I didn't realize that she didn't have a car. And I said, well, I have these things. She says, oh, my goodness, I, I don't have a way to bring them home. I said, I'll take you home. So I gave her a ride and we were talking in the car and she began to tell me that she just had a double mastectomy. And so she says, you know, my father's a pastor. And I think the reason why I got the cancer is because I'm a pastor's child and I'm not doing what God wants me to do. And I'm no longer a woman. And I can, I remember telling her, you are a woman. It's not your breast that makes you a woman. It's what's inside of you. I said, you're a beautiful black woman. And here's my number and take my number if you need any kind of support. So that happened three yeah, months that was a, before. That was like a critical point. I want to back up though to something you said. Why do you, I mean, you don't know this woman um, uh, beyond this incident. So you didn't have any history, but without doing too much speculation, like what's your take on why she thought God was punishing her and how did she look at that moving forward once she better understood the science or, or did she get to that point? Like, help me understand, you know, cause that's that, you know, some of those things that in our community folks have a certain viewpoint and they're not all the way informed. And so as a result, you know, they can't help, you know, they can't be a voice. They can't, you know, help other people. What, what do you think was the, the driving force beyond behind that? Well, I think the driving force of her thinking that she was being judged is because she was in a black church. Her father was probably a very prominent black pastor. And unfortunately, our churches tell us the reason why you get sick or you get cancer or bad things happen to you is because you're not following God's laws and you are a bad person. And so in her mind, from her words, this is what she said. 
I got cancer and I lost the breast because I thought I was a beautiful woman because she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. And, you know, I saw her years later and she was very thankful for the time of somebody who didn't even know me, went and got me some food, took me home and encouraged me. And she says, and I'm alive today and I am a woman. It's very beautiful woman. But, you know, back then this was in in the 90s. So this was in 95. I was diagnosed in 96. So in 95, the winter of 95, this is when I met this woman. And then years later, she came across my past again. And she's like, those words saved my life. Wow. Because she, I didn't realize that she had become suicidal. She hmm. wanted to take herself out because one, cursed by God, two, rejected by the church, three, I'm an ugly black woman and I'm no longer a woman. Why do I need to live? Wow. Hmm. So you have this experience that really plants the seed or gives you some context you know, about certain things, but still, um, I mean, you correct me. Did you have any issues, you know, fast forward three months later, did you feel like uh, there was something that wasn't right? Or you just said, no, I I just need to go get one of these, uh, these tests done. Well, my thing is, you know, I'm a praying woman. I'm like, wait a minute, there's nobody in the room, but my two-year-old daughter taking a nap. So I just grabbed the phone and made that appointment. And I told them that I want to get a mammogram. They said, okay, come on in. And my experience from that was I went to my doctor, said, I want to get a mammogram. And she she said, well, let's do an exam first. So she did an exam. And then she began to give me reasons why I didn't need to have a mammogram. Her last reason was the reason why I didn't need to get a mammogram is because I'm a black woman. And breast cancer does not happen to to people like you in your community. She told me to come back in 10 years. So I'm hearing these words. Wait, now hold on, because I got to pause you. Does she say this in a, you know, matter of fact, science-based way or like, like it just sounds so crazy for, you know, a, a physician to even say those words. What's the, what's the energy and the tone of her voice as she's delivering this message? First, it was very flowery. Hmm. And then when I I said, no, I want a mammogram and I want it now. Then it was a pushback. Fine. We'll give you one. Just hmm. to shut you up. That was the tone immediately wow. from, oh, you know, you're just a beautiful black woman. Never have to worry about it to what? You snap back and you want a mammogram? Yes, and I want it now. And fine. So that was the whole energy and shift in the room. Right. And then when I was diagnosed, I happened to be diagnosed on my 35th birthday. Mm. After my diagnosis, my doctor called me and she says, Bridget, I owe you an apology. She said, I'm glad that you pushed to get a mammogram because we wouldn't have found the breast cancer. And she said, I have to tell you that we're taught in school that black women don't need mammograms because they don't get breast cancer. 
It's not that they didn't get breast cancer. They got breast cancer, but they were not living. They were dying at an alarming rate. They may have got it less often than white women. Now it's more of an even plane. But back then, they were saying black women were dying immediately. Why? Because they were late stage diagnosis. They were told by the medical community, you don't have to worry about it. It doesn't exist in the black community. Kind of like the COVID when it first came out. Black Mm -hmm. people, you don't have to worry about COVID. It's not affecting you. And black people were dying. But they didn't say that in the news. Hmm. Goodness. Okay. So you're 35. You get this diagnosis. Why? why? I mean, you know, we've talked about some of your your earlier childhood and and life experiences. So I can I can guess, but I want to hear it from you. But why did your diagnosis turn into advocacy? It turned into advocacy. One, I remember the story that happened three months before my diagnosis. Mm. Two, when my diagnosis happened, I, you know, told the doctor, listen, I just need to know all the facts so that I can make the right decision for me. And as we're, we're, we're going to do this together. And she says, real, real wow. quick, real, real quick. Educate us on what those decisions are. What What is this process? Uh, yes. uh, like, like, what are you navigating at this point? So at this point, I'm navigating whether I'm going to have a mastectomy, total mastectomy, a lumpectomy, a partial mastectomy. So those were some of the choices that were laid out just on the surgical side. Mm-hmm. And so I said, if I ask the question, I happen to have a black doctor. Her, she was a surgeon. She just recently passed away, Dr. Patricia Dawson. And I said to her, if I was your daughter, what would you advise me to do? And she said, I would advise you to get a mastectomy. And she said, the reason I would is because the total uh, left side of my right breast from the top to the bottom, you could see little flakes of cancer through that whole left side. Mm-hmm. And she said, if you did a partial, it'd be very difficult to reconstruct. And I said, that's fine. We can, we're, we're going to go with a total mastectomy. And then she said, and if you want to do reconstruction, you can do that or you can wait later. And I said, well, if I'm going to be having surgery and you're going to already have me there, can we do this together? Well, back then they, they could do that together for me. So I had a mastectomy and reconstruction done at the same time. I think I probably was in surgery eight hours. And I came out just fine. But what I found out is that other women were not giving the options. They were not even told what was going to happen to them. So Mm -hmm. I knew advocacy was very important that I get this out to to the community immediately and also help them to understand that breast cancer happens to black women right and what you need to do why you need to go and get a mammogram why do you need to demand a mammogram they were handing them out like candy to white women but with black women there was always a barrier you don't need to have it you're too young back then they were doing baseline mammograms for white women at 35 black women they were not they didn't even want to give them a mammogram 
Wow. And so the advocacy started three days after my diagnosis. I called hmm. everybody I knew. If I was in the store, if I was out in the community, I would say, hey, you know about breast cancer? You know about breast cancer in black women? That's how this advocacy yeah, no, that, started. I, I love the energy. Tell me, um, I'm always a practical person, so I'm trying to get educated as I'm listening to your your story as well. For women, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that there's a, a time range based upon kind of the, the, you know, how rapidly the cancer is spreading and other types of things. But when women are, are going through this decision and, you know, men get breast cancer too, so we shouldn't um, uh, nix that. But when people are uh, going that's through- That's very important though. Don't, don't, yes. don't skim over that. No, we're going to come back to that. One, okay. Yeah. Uh, we're going to come back to that. But you're talking about these decisions that people are making. I'm trying to get my head wrapped around the time window. Yeah. Is this something that someone has to get educated and make a decision in days and weeks and months? Like, like what's, what's the time window in someone's life that they have to kind of figure out what they're going to do? Uh, and there's a range, but, but help me, you know, get a bit more educated there. So usually depending on if it's a fast growing cancer, if it's a slow growing cancer, or if it's a complicated cancer that's being treated. Back then, they kind of almost treated the cancers all the same, with the exception hormone-related type breast cancers. And that's the type of cancer that I was diagnosed with in 1996. And so if it is, um, there's so many different types of breast cancer, like unbelievable amount of differences. Hmm. So that that is the decision making on, hey, we need to start your treatment now, whether it's chemotherapy, whether it's uh, surgery, whether it's hormone therapy. I was diagnosed with a very small cancer. At first, they thought it was just a beginning and it wasn't really full blown cancer until they actually did the surgery. And what Dr. Dawson said, if we hadn't done the surgery, the cancer would have been left there because it was so small. It's like the size of a, uh, when you take a pencil and just make a dot, that's what mm -hmm. the size was. And so I know that they're doing a lot of breast conservation now, but, and treatments have progressed and got, gotten better. But back then, you know, it was almost like it's a shot in the dark. If you get breast cancer, we do the mastectomy. Prior to the 90s, they removed the muscle. They really mutilated women's bodies to where they were so debilitated and became disabled because of the way that they did surgery. It wow. was it was really kind of inhumane. And so now things have changed. I have to say that they that they grew up, they progressed and how they are treating uh, women when they were diagnosed. But that window of if I find a lump, early diagnosis and early treatment is the best way to combat the disease of breast cancer. If your doctor tells you the lump that's there, it's nothing to worry about. It's probably hormonal and we'll check it again in six months. Be proactive in your health care. Make sure you know what that is. And don't allow a doctor to tell you it's not a big deal. Now we have are those individuals that say, well, you know what? I need to just eat certain things and, and then I'll be better. I would advise you to find a doctor that you can trust and have this discussion and blend it all together. I'm not telling you to throw it away. I'm saying go ahead and use that. 
Use your eating, use your herbs, use your vitamins, use your supplements, do all of that. But put together a health team so that you can have all sides covered. It's like you on baseball. You got all the bases covered, right? Mm-hmm, right. Don't leave third base out because you're not going to make it home. <laughs> so let's make sure that you have all the bases covered. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You want the baby. Wash the mm-hmm. baby out. <laughs> throw the bathwater out. Keep the baby. Right. Let's, um, I mean, great advice. I, I want to come back to what we had talked about, you know, breast cancer as it, as it uh, impacts men or males. Help me understand, uh, you know, share how men should be thinking about this, not just as a support audience, but also at folks who can be impacted individually. Well, we've had several men in our group that had breast cancer. One of the gentlemen, which was a real serious issue, is that he called me one day and he said, Bridget, I'm growing a breast. And I said, okay, breast on men don't just grow. He says, just one side, just one of my breasts is growing. I said, well, we need to get you into the doctors. And so come to find out that he had uh, late stage breast cancer. And they told him, well, you know what? There is nothing we can do. Uh, we'll make you comfortable. And I said, that's not true. I said, let's go find a doctor that will make sure what type of cancer it is. Is there any clinical trials available to you? That's the other thing. Our community is not given uh, adequate clinical trials options when they're dealing with this disease. And so we found a doctor that enrolled him into a clinical draw- trial and it gave him five more years and said, instead of the very short term of uh, preparing for his death. And so he was our one of our Sierra brothers that lived longer than what he would have when he was first diagnosed. Right. We found him the right kind of care, the doctor that would believed in doing something for our black folks in the community. And he happened to be a man. And one of the things he would say is, you know, he says, I go into the clinic, into the, where everybody's getting their treatment. And of course it's a breast clinic. And he said, and I'm the only man in there talking to all the women. He said, I got all these women to talk to (laughs) (laughs) while he's waiting for his treatment. So he had a great attitude and he had no sorrow in the life that he had, but he was really thankful and wants the message to get out. Men can get breast cancer. One to 2% of men are getting breast cancer and you can't ignore the symptoms. You need to check yourself just like women do. Check your breasts. And if there's something or your chest, you guys have chest and pecs, but your (laughs) chest and pecs don't turn into breast, you know? So check them. Just like you check everything else on your body, check them. And if there's something going on, go get it checked out by a doctor. Get it diagnosed. Be proactive. Be very proactive. Let's talk about your organization, Sierra Sisters. First, what's the behind the name? Sierra is an African name that means knowing. If you have the knowledge, you have the power to fight against the effects of breast cancer. Excellent. And tell me, I mean, there's so many different ways you could tackle this problem for your organization. Um, you know, what, what's, what, what's the toolkit? How, how do you, you know, what's the work that you actually go do? So the work that we do is we educate our community on what the disease is. 
on how to do a self-breast exam, how to navigate through the healthcare system, which is very complicated. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's really hard to get your doctor to say, hey, you know, there's something here. Let's go get it checked out. Once you have a diagnosis, that's not the time to fall apart. And that's what happens. Our sisters sometimes just fall apart. And it's like, you know, whatever the doctor tells me to do, I'm going to do it. I wanted to share with you that sometimes our doctors are overwhelmed themselves for whatever reason, I don't want to blatantly just call it only racism, but racism is a part of that. Sometimes you got to think about your doctors are seeing people five minutes. You got to get them in and get them out. Mm-hmm. Your situation is very different. So you need to make sure that if you have a problem, if you've been diagnosed, that you know what type of cancer that you have. If you don't know those questions, You can call us, you can look on the website, find out what kind of questions do I need to ask my doctor. It's very important. Make sure you're getting the right kind of treatment. We've had individuals come to us that were not getting the right type of treatment for the type of cancer that they have. I've gotten many, many phone calls. All all of our Sierra sisters that are working in the advocacy have gotten many phone calls and said, hey, my doctor wants to do this. They're discouraging them to get a second opinion. We encourage you to always get a second opinion. It's always better to have more than one eyes on your situation. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that's empowering. We can't put our heads in the sand. If you put your heads in the sand and put your life in somebody's hands totally, sometimes putting it in someone else's hands will take your life. So be proactive. If you don't know how to advocate, get with someone who knows how to advocate for you. But also listen, when you go to the doctor's appointment, either take a tape recorder, a pen, bring someone else. Don't go by yourself. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. Black people are endangered species for a reason. We were used for the test. We were used as guinea pigs. We're used as target practice. So, Being an endangered species, right? In the animal world, oh, we've got to protect them. They spend a lot of money protecting endangered species. We as a community, we have to come together and protect each other as endangered species. And when it comes down to breast cancer, when you go into that doctor's office and they have made a mistake in giving you the wrong thing, what happens? You die. Their mistakes are buried. We don't have the money to have a full investigation on what happened to this individual. So cherish your lives and understand that just because you have a diagnosis, that doesn't mean the world is over, but you need to advocate. You need to navigate through a very uh, complex healthcare system. You need to figure out if you have insurance, if you don't. Our state is one of the states that will make sure that that they have health care insurance for you if you don't have it. So there are things that are can be in place so that you can have a healthy life so that when you come to the other side, it's like, wow, I went through surgery. I went through treatment, whether it's hormone related or if it's if it's chemotherapy, I'm on the other side. And now I'm empowered to share my experience with someone else. 
and let them know there is life after breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Powerful. A couple of things before we wrap. Appreciate um, all the knowledge so far. I wanted to get, uh, we could just touch on this briefly, but in addition to what these physicians are sharing, um, you know, as practitioners, how does research factor in and, uh, you know, when there's not the right kind of audience or population that's being tested or, you know, I'm not educated on this, so so you tell me, but does research factor into how breast cancer, you know, gets tackled in communities of color? Absolutely. Research is very important. I'm alive today because of research in a clinical trial. So I was first diagnosed in 1996. 18 years later, I had a reoccurrence of the breast cancer in the lungs and the liver. Well, what do they tell people? Oh, you're, you're stage four. It's, it's moved around in your body. And I, I find myself always advocating. So the first doctor that I went to, she told me, she said, you will not live a year and you'll never sing again. Mm. And so my daughter said, I jumped off the table. This part I don't remember. And I pointed my finger at her and said, I don't receive it in the name of Jesus. So we got our clothes on and left. <laughs> and so that doctor became amazed that I was starting to get better. And she says, what are you doing? I said, I'm staying away from you. Well, eventually I had to fire her because she told me that I, I told her, I said, I found a clinical trial I like to be a part of. And she said, well, no, I can't sign these papers. I'm not going to let you get into a clinical trial. And I told her, you don't have a right to tell me that I can't get into a clinical trial. So I fired her, moved on, got another doctor, wonderful doctor, Dr. Julie Graylow. She's a world-renowned oncologist on breast cancer. And she says, oh, no, we're gonna, we, you can go in and get the clinical trial. And so I did. I did the clinical trial. What was it, a year after that? And the first doctor who told me that I'd never sing again, I was invited by the Seahawks to sing the anthem at the Seahawks-Cowboys game. Get it. So I did that, continued to sing and do other things within the community and uh, around the world, different parts of the world. And so having clinical trials, if we are not involved in clinical trials, then the treatments that they have is almost substandard for Black people for black women, for black men. It doesn't matter what type of cancer it is. If we're not involved in the, these clinical trials, then the, the people that they're doing the clinical trials are, are usually white people. It was flipped decades ago. They were doing trials that were horrible experience, experiments. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, it's changed now. And so white people are going in, getting clinical trials, and they're getting the best treatment for the type of cancer that they have. So I would say, don't be afraid of clinical trials. And if you have a doctor saying, hey, there's nothing else we can do for you and they're not willing to explore other treatment options, go somewhere else. Don't be afraid and lock down to one person looking at your healthcare because someone else who might be have a fresher mind may have a fresher eyes on that. They say, hey, you know what? You... We have these wonderful options that are available to you, and this is going to make a difference. And yeah. so I know these are these are true statements because we've had individuals that were with doctors and the doctors told them to go home and, and get their affairs in order. 
They've came to us. We've got them into another healthcare system and they live past the 90 day mark. Three years later, they're still doing well and out here in the community doing great things. So I would encourage you, just because one person says to you, this is it for you, it's how your mind receives that. If you are going to believe that your fate is in the hands of an individual that told you there's nothing else that you have to offer this world, go home and die. Don't do that. Mm. Be powerful powerful in yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have one more question, but, um, or two more questions. My, My first is anything else that you think, uh, we should, you know, that you want to share that we should have top of mind as we're thinking about this, uh, you know, this issue, how to tackle it? Well, of course, we talk about exercise. Make sure that you're getting your fair share of exercise. Even if it's just at your home, walking around the outside of your home. If that's all you could do, that's fine. If you, all you could do is stand in place and just do high rise, high steps, five minutes of that. Just do what you can a little bit every day. If you do something for what is they say it's 20 days and it becomes a habit. Mm-hmm. If you don't like drinking water, drink one glass, increase it to two glasses, increase it to three. You'll eventually get to the eight glasses of water, six to eight glasses of water a day. If you don't like vegetables, just think of it when you take that first bite. This is the best ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Psych yourself out to do it. Psych yourself out to be healthy. Psych yourself out to live your best life and have that voice. Mm -hmm. And if you feel like that this thing has come up on me, and I'm not talking about just breast cancer, all cancers or a health situation, don't let your mind put you in the grave. Look in the mirror and say, Bridget, you have the best life. And today you have the opportunity to live your best life. So say that to yourself. I love it. If you're feeling down and you're full of sorrow and your tears are overwhelming, just know, look at the tears as they're cleansing. Now, today I'm going to get up. I'm going to dust myself off. And I'm not going to think about the fact that I had cancer and I'm not what I used to be. Today, this is my new me. And my new me is phenomenal. Fantastic. I'm going to use your mother's quote. You know, let me tell you what you need to do. Let Um, me tell you what you need to do. (laughs) Grandma uh, Dolores. I want you to give us that perspective on how someone can support your work and your organization. What, what should we do? You can be a volunteer. You can give donations. You can be an encouragement. If, you, if we have different events, come out and support them. If you'd like to see us do some other things, if you want to be a part of our advisory community council, Come and support Sierra Sisters. If you are black, white, brown, or green, (laughs) doesn't matter. You can support 
in any kind of way. Fantastic. Right now we're on this wonderful station and you're supporting because you're getting the word out that we're here. Mm-hmm. And it's not only local, but nationally. You can sign up and say, hey, I want to come to the next meeting. Fantastic. Well, this zoom is great. In. Everything is Zoom, Zoom, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And and we get to share you know, all this great knowledge by connecting with uh, folks like yourself. And uh, Bridget, I want to say thank you again for joining us today and sharing your story. Thank you. One of the things I want to share with you is Sierra is spelled C-I-E-R-R-A-S-I-S-T-E-R-S. Some people make a mistake and they put that S in there, but it's a C, Sierra Sisters. All right. And then tell, tell our listeners where they can find your the organization's website online. www.sierrasisters.org. You can call 206-579-4521. Look us up that way or send an email to C-I-E-R-R-A underscore sisters at hotmail.com. Perfect. Well, thanks everyone joining us as well, listening in on this great and educational conversation with Bridget. We hope you enjoyed your time as well. As always, please leave a great review wherever you listen to our show. I'm LaShawn and remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.